I only have one that I really like. <laughs> and that's the one that died. <laughs> it's like Steve Jobs and the dude had triplets and they built an app. This is Founder Quest. So I'm sitting in my chair with this laptop and the thing literally crashes in my lap. And when I turn it back on, it gives me that blinking folder. The blinking folder. I don't know if you've ever seen the blinking folder. Ben says he hasn't. The blinking folder is what you get when there is no hard drive attached to the system. <laughs> so, oh no, what, what is there? Is there a hard drive? There was. <laughs> it's not finding it anymore. It's, I mean, is there, one there is a physical hard drive in the system. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay um, good. However, the hard drive I suspect has finally croaked. So now I've had two, I've literally had like two laptops die on me in one week. I don't, I don't know if I'm cursed or something. Well, that's what you get for using that cheap <laughs> right. hardware. Yeah. It's probably just the, yeah, I probably should never have upgraded the hardware, the, uh, the hard drive. Anyway, fingers crossed. Cause, uh, if this Mac mini kicks the bucket, then it's, then it really is back to Linux. It's just the universe's way of telling you it's time to take a vacation. I think you're right, Ben. <laughs> I've been saying that I, I could use a vacation and <laughs> yeah, you two were talking about, about taking vacations and then like the world. Well, ends, yeah. That's so. like, yeah, the world ends. And then it seems like, I don't know. I've just been feeling pressure to get stuff done. I don't know. Yeah. Getting stuff done is a good thing. Actually making progress on something is. is one way to kind of calm that anxiety too. Well, speaking of getting stuff done. You know, so while you've been trying <laughs> to actually get anything done this week, I've been working on the, I was going to go on mm -hmm. vacation. I was thinking about taking some time off, but then, but then you, you said, well, I could use your help on this task. And so I'm like, okay, I'll help you with that. And that was two weeks ago. <laughs> and I thought it was going to take two days, but it, it didn't end up taking Yeah, sorry. Days. So what I've been working on, oh, that's, that's totally fine. The thing that's great about being one of the few people at Honey Badger is that we get to decide what we do, right? We don't have deadlines that we have to meet. We don't have like deliverables that we promised. And so when you have a case like this, where I felt like, hmm, there's something I want to get done here, we can just do it. So the task that you gave me was to get some new pricing support ready. So we have some new pricing that we want to deploy. It's going to require some changes in our app to, because we're changing how we're structuring the pricing. And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can bust it out real quick. And so then I looked at doing that. And the way that I, so Stripe has changed how they arrange the products and the plans and how you do pricing uh, since we launched with Stripe, you know, seven or eight years ago. And I decided I wanted to use this new approach that Stripe has. But the trick there is that you have to use a new API version or a recent API version. And we were not using a recent API version. We were using an API version that we started using back eight years ago, which happened to be an API version of Stripes from like 2011. It was a good year. It's a good, know? it's a good vintage of API. I got to, got to hand it to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like some people call that legacy. I call it vintage. Well, either way, I get props to Stripe for how they do their API versioning. It is freaking awesome. Like you can stay on that old version as long as you want. Basically they will support it until the end of the internet looks like, and they have a really awesome way to manage the upgrade process when you decide you do an upgrade and their documentation is very clear about changes that have happened between the different APIs. Yeah, I don't want to like jump ahead of you too far, but I, I was going to say I noticed in when I was reviewing the pull request that you sent, it looks like we're we're supporting both versions of the API for now or something like that. Is that true or did I misread that? 
That is, yeah, that's, that is true. So yeah, so I just, I decided to go ahead and bite the bullet and do the upgrade of the API because I'm like, you know what, this is an area of technical debt that we should probably just pay down on some. And uh, yeah, so as I was looking at the different payload formats, they're not dramatically different, which is nice, but there, there are some key differences. And there are two aspects, right? There's the outbound API request that you make, like when we want to update a card, we have to you know, make a request to update the customer record. But then there's also the handling the webhooks, right? And those webhook payloads also changed a little bit. And I knew that you know, we could deploy the new version of our app with using the new API version, but the webhooks would still be coming in as the old version until I went into the Stripe dashboard and changed that. Again, they're, they're very good about you can manage which API version you want. So I decided I would support both versions so that I could deploy the app, not have to worry about the timing of changing that setting in Stripe, then go to Stripe and change that setting and not have the app have to have an immediate deployment. So yeah, kind of a, a straddling the river kind of thing. But basically we've shaved all the yaks. We're ready to, <laughs> there might be a few left. I made a major payment on that technical debt. <laughs> yeah, we've completely like, like swapped out our old like Vim plugins for like new Vim plugins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the reasons why it took so long is I, I, I did spend extra time on those tests because you don't want the billing system to break, right? You don't want to not be able oh, yeah. to take people's credit cards and, and to fail on those webhooks. We have a lot of logic that happens when people's payments, you know, things change and we don't want any of that to break. Yeah, and I'm glad that you did. So one, one benefit of doing this work, aside from having that technical debt paid down and feeling all nice and shiny on the new API version, is that we also upgraded two major versions of the Stripe JS. So, you know, we use the, their JavaScript on the client side to actually collect the payment information so that we don't ever touch it. Like it goes, you know, the credit card data goes straight to Stripe's servers and we just get a, a token. We use their JavaScript for that. Well, we were using version one of their JavaScript and the current version is version three. So I completely skipped version two, like who needs that, right? But the benefit is that now we can support the uh, 3D secure thing for credit cards. So I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when you go and you, you try to do a checkout, like at, I don't know, Newegg or something, and your, your Visa provider is like, oh, you need to do this extra step of actually verifying that you want to use right. your credit card. Have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, like it's, a, it's like an inter intermittent, like a, in between the request, like it yeah. goes, does it actually go to one of the other network like websites or something, or is it? Hosted by Stripe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. Well, in this case, in this case, Stripe handled okay. that in their new version of the nice. JavaScript. So just by okay. upgrading that, uh, we were able to support that now. So someone who's using a card like that can now use Honey Badger more easily. Very cool. And there was this whole thing in Europe about the secure card authorization. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. That happened late last year, I think. And they have a similar kind of thing, except it's more, it's more prevalent. Like in the U.S., we don't see that very often, but it's more prevalent in the EU. So now we support that better. So that's good. Cool. So we're, we're stronger, better. Exactly. Speaking of security, I don't know if either of you follow Brian Krebs. He's a security yeah. specialist. He writes about I follow him stuff. a little bit. And he wrote this post recently that talked about this new twist on bank scams. So, you know, you have someone calls you and they're spoofing your bank's uh, mm -hmm. phone number. And they're like, oh, there's some fraud on your account. And, and then they end up get convincing you to give up your, you know, your password or your PIN or whatever. Well, there's a new a twist on that scam. And that is the scammers, while they're calling you acting like your bank, they're also calling your bank spoofing your phone number so that the bank thinks you are calling them. And so 
they might get your recent three transactions, for example, using the automated system because the automated system is like, oh, it's the right phone number. I'll just let them get that yeah. info, right? No big deal. But then the scammer is like telling you, oh, so the last three transactions on your card were blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, that's actually right. I guess this is a legit, right? Uh, and then they're like, so oh, it's like a, it's like an actual literal man in the middle attack. <laughs> exactly. A literal man in the middle attack. Nice. So then you give them the, your pin and then they're like, okay, please hold. And they are on the other line with the bank. And they're like, okay, here's the pin. <laughs> and then they get access to your account. And then of course they can wow. just do whatever, right? Amazing. That, yeah. The, they always think, see, they always think of the, like something new. That's the thing. Brian Krabs, yeah. did you ever read, yeah. I think it was Spam Nation. Was that the name of his book? I want to say. No, I didn't. That oh, was yeah, a good book that. about the, uh, yeah, like the dark world of spam email and like all the things that people go to, to like own, you know, own their little spam kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. That one was about like, it, it followed this, like, I think it was mm -hmm. in Russia, like a internet pharmacy person who did like yeah. spam. Yeah. Back when. Like back when, I don't know if people still do Viagra spam. I haven't seen that in a long yeah, time. Yeah, I don't know. I, there, I think like spam is, has come in waves. Like it's, I, I, as I recall, like they'll, you know, they'll kind of figure out a new method and ra it'll ramp up. And then, you know, the people that are fighting it will come up with new defenses and then they'll have to go back to the drawing board and figure it out again. And then you'll get another wave of them deploying their botnets and, and all that. Cause that's the other thing you have to like build up your spam army. Like you got to have your botnet. So that's why they're actually like hacking all these, you know, PCs and stuff just so they can send emails. Yeah. It's a good book though. Yeah, just use Amazon. <laughs> right. Why not move that to the cloud? <laughs> that seems like a lot of work to like rip people off. I'm sure there's money in it, but I mean, then you're like a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that just seems like it drain you, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's gotta be some people who really, uh, you know, are fulfilled by it. <laughs> They're like, I was just born. I was, yeah. I was born to be bad. Like that George Thurgood <laughs> song, the boomers love. If I don't, or is that, no, it's born bad, bad to the bone. bone. I'm sorry. I'm ba, ba, sorry. Ba, ba, ba. Bad to the yeah. bone. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah. So this, this week, I guess, or past few weeks, what have I been up, up to? So yeah, I, I had this like grand scheme to have a editor, a freelance editor who had actually written for us in the past um, a blog post, do some editing to kind of lighten my load because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, to juggle, you know, childcare and work mm -hmm. and all that. And that kind of just fell on its face. So I've been doing a lot of editing this week. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well invest a little bit of time in, in some tooling. So I actually have, I spent some time on setting up VS Code to be a sort of markdown editor. I mean, it works with markdown out of the box, but you can sort of make it pretty super nice for markdown. And there's actually a unofficial sort of Grammarly plugin. Um, Grammarly is this web service that will, I mean, it's got spell check, it's got grammar check, but it also lets you know about like, hey, you're you know, using this word that people use too much and it sounds stupid. Uh -huh. So maybe use this other word instead suggestions like that and so so i can get like grammarly suggestions in vs code that's really itself. cool and it, it uses like the it is yeah and it uses the like it uses the same sort of ui system that uh, so like, like yeah like the, it looked use. like you, you posted a screenshot it looked like the almost like it was a linter or something so it like shows problems in vs code or whatever and then or whatever like hints or whatever they call it yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, so it un yeah, underlines the problem word or phrase or whatever, and then you can m mouse over it for, 
for more information. Um, it's also got a, I don't know, like, I forget what this is called. Like there's a pane down at the bottom where you usually get like a yeah. list of all your compile errors or whatever. And it puts all the errors in there. So you can just sort of go mm -hmm. through them and it's pretty nice. I mean, it's got, it's kind of an unofficial plugin and everything. So it's got like a, a few little hiccups here and there, but, but overall it's, I'm actually a lot more happy using VS code for this sort of work than I was yeah. with Do them. Um, just because do you like it better than the uh, the Grammarly app too for for that sort of thing? Because they have like the the Mac app or whatever, but you it's like more you copy the your text into it and then it makes the suggestions or whatever. Did you use that? Yes. So I've tried it. Yeah. So here's the the thing that I would really appreciate Grammarly actually doing is supporting Markdown yeah. files because you can't really open a Markdown file like a, something with an extension MD in it and then once you get it in there, it doesn't really know what to do with yeah. Markdown. It's kind of just a huge pain in the neck because like, okay, so I copy and paste the Markdown text into Grammarly. And then, well, when it's, I'm, I've checked it, now it's time to get it back. Like it's screwed up all my Markdown. Mm -hmm. And now I have to like reformat it. And it's just, so this, yeah, that's why, why I was really excited to see this, um, this plugin for VS yeah. Code. And, you know, I, I even got like a special like, you know, writing font that had like it's there's some like very good rationale for like the specific font <laughs> that I completely went over my head because I don't understand mm -hmm. typography. But anyway, it's it's nice. pretty. So yeah, yeah. In addition to that, just been working on. Uh, I think we talked about this in a previous show how uh, we were sort of like juggling responsibilities a little bit, and so I'm sort of more in charge of managing day to day marketing stuff, and so you know, I've been working on that, and we. I've instituted a, a monthly marketing check-in meeting with like our marketing person, um, Ben Finley and Josh and myself. And so uh, we did one of those. And one of the things I really liked um, about that is that we, we did that thing where we opened like a, a document in Notion and then collaboratively edit it. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that super useful because normally at this point, I would be struggling to remember like, what did we talk about in this meeting? Like, what, what am I supposed to... Like, what am I supposed to ask um, Ben Finley about? What am I supposed to follow up on? And, you know, hopefully I remembered to write that down in my own to-do list. But yeah. since we've got this document here, I can just go check it and be like, oh, yeah, like we're supposed to be doing this stuff. So let's, let's actually yeah. do that instead of forgetting yeah, about no it. No taking and templates are good. Uh, we, could, we could make like a, even like a template for each of those meetings so that we have like a starting point every week which, or every month or whatever. So we can just kind of fill it, fill it in and... Yeah, definitely. Another way this is useful is like one of my tasks was to like prepare some notes for Ben Finley because um, he's going to contact a vendor about a, a potential piece of software for us to use. And so I was able to just sort of put those notes straight in that document. So now it's like, you know, I don't have to like keep track of a separate file. You know, where did I put that thing? Like, where is it mm -hmm. saved? It's just all right in there. Nice. So I don't know. That's, that's basically yeah. what I've been doing. And like lots of Lots, lots more childcare than usual, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, both exhausting and wonderful and exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I, I concur. Well, I have been, aside from the, the tech support for my, my computers, I've managed to get a little bit done this week. And, uh, and also what I've kind of like, what I was planning on doing, and I'm just getting around to it like yesterday and today is starting to dig into some more, um, of like uh like third-party library like open source stuff that i want to learn 
the reason for that is because I'm, since I'm shifting, I've been, I was doing a little bit more of the marketing side, um, before all this, but, uh, now that we're not bringing on another hire at the moment to, um, take over some of the, like the client library development and maintenance, and also some of the work that I was planning to actually like move those, those packages and libraries forward. I'm shifting, shifting back to focus on that a little bit. And that's actually been kind of fun because I'm, I'm trying to like dig into some of the things that I was kind of like holding off on. So like I took, we recently uh, got a team membership for Egghead IO, um, which is like a screencast or education thing. I took a Python course the other day to kind of brush up on my Python knowledge because we've been doing a lot of work on, uh, on our Python package for our Django integration and that sort of stuff. So that was fun. And I'm and like, right now I'm diving into, um, some uh, like isomorphic JavaScript and uh, server-side rendering and all that fun stuff, Vue and React. So uh, that's where I anticipate spending some time over the next couple of weeks, try to get a better handle on that world. And my end goal is to better support those platforms with our JavaScript packages. So it's been kind of fun and I'm looking forward to it. So you've done some Udemy courses. I remember we did like when we did our hackathon for Elixir, we picked up some Elixir and Phoenix ones, and now you've done some Egghead ones. So I'm interested to, to know what you think about the differences of those two. Like, how has that been? Are they both great or? So like I really like Egghead now, and I've been meaning to like try Egghead for a long time. I, I'm actually friends with um, one of the founders. They have been longtime Honey Badger customers as well. Um, so like we love Egghead. So yeah, they, they have a, like a really strong focus on like the front end the front end like JavaScript side of things. So this was like the perfect opportunity, for, I think, for me to, to dive in and do that. The thing that I really like about Egghead over, over like my experience with Udemy, and I guess they both have kind of their strengths, but Egghead is much more tailored towards like, like small bits of learning. So the courses are typically, they seem to be much shorter. The lessons themselves, like it, the courses are like broken down into really concise little chunks. So like, you know, they could be like three to 10 minutes or something or two to 10 minutes or something like that. And you have like a, you know, I don't know, I think the Python course I took had like 28 lessons that were within that time range. So it was like an hour, like an hour, a couple hours, I think the total course was, um, but some of the courses are, you know, under an hour even. So they really focus on like, like optimizing your time, like not taking too much of your time. Whereas with Udemy, I forget how long that course took, but that was like, that was like a month long. It was a long course and it, it was, was a long, huge, yeah, was like it was like a huge time. investment. Like, yeah, I had to like plan, yeah. I had to plan like days of my time for that month to actually get through that course. And that, that's a reason like I've, I, that was the first course like that, that I've actually ever gotten, like actually gotten to the end of, I think that was an Elixir, an Elixir Phoenix, like masterclass type thing. I don't know, like I enjoyed, I enjoyed the deep dive into Elixir, but I think it was, it was more because I really enjoyed Elixir and less because I enjoyed like a whatever 40 hour course that I had to like, <laughs> you know, hit milestones on and, and everything. So right. yeah, I'm really, I'm liking the egghead format and I, I think they're onto something. Yeah. They just need some more server side stuff. Yeah. Some of the, some of that, I well, you know, I don't know, we could, we could always like start start making our own courses on server side stuff since that's, our, that's our, uh, that's our jam. <laughs> yeah, badger. <laughs> <laughs> badger head. Yeah. Badger head. The, the other thing I've been doing is I've been trying to play with things more like, like random, like if I see a new project come up, like actually take it and like try it out. So I recently took Heya, which is my, 
my campaign, uh, email campaign gem for Ruby, went through the process of installing it into a fresh uh, Jumpstart app, which is um, Chris Oliver's uh, Rails template, you know, like, like starter kit. And so that was fun. I got to like check out Jumpstart. And at the same time, like I took down some notes for like how to install Heya into a new app. And also that was a really good opportunity to experience like the first run process of installing my thing into a new project because I don't get that opportunity very much. So I was able to make a lot of some nice improvements to that, make it smoother and reduce friction. That was fun. I recently tried Lambi, which is the Lambi gem is a, uh, it's a gem that lets you deploy a Rails app to AWS Lambda which is kind of wild. I'm not sure like how I feel about the, uh, that approach yet, but um, actually I ended up getting to talk to the creator of, of the gem and he made a lot of good points. Like there um, it's a custom ink, I think is the, uh, the mm-hmm. they, they built this at custom ink tech and um, they've been using it there in production and, you know, it seems to work well for them. So it's interesting, like some of the things you can do if you really try make it work. But yeah, I just like deployed, you know, I went through their getting started guide deployed a little hello world rails app to to lambda that was a fun experience that took a little bit longer than uh the jump start <laughs> the jump start thing like how long the cold start on that takes like how long does it's it a while on the first um like i mean it's it's about as long as it takes a rails app to boot so it's not great that said once i mean once it's hot like it seems it's responsive and and snappy and everything i haven't i maybe it might be an interesting test to do like some load testing on it I should run AB on it or something. Yeah, I mean, like it seems to, once it started, it seems to be pretty good. And the other, I had that same question. The other question I had was about the, well, actually this, my brother asked this, uh, Ben. Apparently Lambda has a max payload size of the unzipped, like the unzipped package is 250 megabytes. And so my other, our other question was like, well, Rails apps could be fairly large. Like, is that going to be a problem? But apparently the, the answer to that is like Rails apps are actually not as not quite as big. Like um, node, node apps can actually get up there <laughs> from what I've heard. But for a lot of Rails apps, they can fit under that limit is, the, is what I gather. So recently, Amazon, they added a feature for Lambda where you can actually keep a Lambda function hot. You can, oh, nice. Uh, I see. Yeah, I uh, saw that. It costs money because, you know, you're... you're running something pretty much full time instead of, you know, just on demand. But, uh, but yeah, if, if load time, if cold start time is really a problem, you can just run one concurrency uh, all the time and always have something ready to respond. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. It's and the, actually the art, like the design of this gem is really cool because it'll it actually, it'll work with any rack app because really all it does is it takes, it creates a, um, a Ruby Lambda handler function that, uh, takes the, the input from wherever like so like API gateway takes, you know, t- it's takes the function input and then basically creates a rack request object from that. And then like the, the env object and it passes that into the rack endpoint for your rails app. And then from there, it's just rails, you know, the rack pipeline all the way down. It does its thing responds. It's just a response. And so that hands it back to the Lambda function, which hands it back to uh, whatever the gateway. You know, what's funny is that, you know, they, they say the technology goes in cycles and I've heard um, Lambda compared to like CGI bin, right? And so this, this project is kind of like the old, I forget what it was called, like CGI gateway or something or Ruby CGI or whatever you had to use to get yeah. Rails working under CGI. And everybody knows that was a, or to get Rails uh-huh. working under CGI. 
And everybody knows that was a disaster, right? And so next there's going to be a mongrel, like next up is mongrel. So that's going to, that's going to happen in the cloud somehow. But but it's at scale. That's the difference here. It's a, it's web scale. It's at scale. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea what that looks like. I'm just, um, from a compliance standpoint, I love the idea of not having any servers. Yeah. Like that just knocks out so many problems. If you say, oh, it's just a Lambda thing and even my whole Rails app is there. I don't have to worry about any servers running. There's no patching. There's no yeah, it's, network it is, It's really interesting. No, yeah, it's a big selling point. Yeah. So my next, my next uh, step on that before I move on, I think is, go, of course, I'm going, I got to install the Honey Badger gem and create a failing, a failing error endpoint so I can, I can see, see how that works in Lambda in a rails app which will be a first i think probably so that'll be fun i might do that later at some point you know what we could move our our hey at sales site over there i i thought of that yeah that that was my um i was i thought about using that as my instead of just doing like the the hello world thing i thought well that's a small rails app i could do that but i wasn't that committed to the project so i i was like that's gonna be like then i have to learn how to like run a rake task and and like all this other stuff i'm like no i'm i'm just gonna like do the quick start guide, like what they recommend. And even that ended up being a little bit of a can of worms because it wasn't quite up to date. So I got to figure out some things for myself. Well, once though. you get an error reporting from Rails app and running on Lambda, like you should do a little screen cap of that. Yeah, and share it with yeah, the world. I guess I could do that. The thing I've been doing with these little projects is I've been writing, like keeping notes of like everything I did to, to get to whatever the end result is. And then just sharing the notes out there, which is, is kind of cool. Um, it's actually been one, like, that's how I was introduced to some of the, you know, the people that actually work on these projects and, and can, uh, ask the questions and stuff. So uh, you can post, like, I just like create a gist and then post that on Twitter or Reddit or whatever dev. So it's like, it's a good way to like get some extra mileage out of playing with new, new things. One of the next things I'm excited about playing with is a uh, stimulus reflex. Did you guys see that video yet? Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Could you describe it? So it's, if you, are you familiar with Phoenix Live View? It's the thing, it's basically like a way to build reactive web applications, but just with like a Rails web stack instead of like all the JavaScript stuff. Like basically you can build applications without JavaScript. The way it works, and I don't want to, I don't want to butcher this because I am not an expert at it, but um, it uses WebSockets basically to, um, to pass information back and forth. Um, so it allows you to basically respond to client-side events. Like the, the app that he built was um, a Twitter clone. It was Twitter clone in 10 minutes in Rails. Say like clicking a like button in like normally you'd have like some JavaScript that handles that and maybe like increments the likes counter and then forwards that to the back end or something. Well, with this, it basically, it like literally lets you click the like button button on the front end and respond to it on the back end. So you have something called, I think they call it a reflex. And um, the reflex is basically like the controller that handles that client side event. So the reflex does whatever the back end handles the, the increment and stuff like increments in the database and then responds and it broadcasts the response back over the WebSocket. And then the client side has a, has like automatic handler code that picks that up and does whatever the act, like the action is like incrementing it on the client side. Oh, cool. So one of the things that I, th- I think, I was say, I may get this totally wrong, but I think that Phoenix Live View did that was interesting is it uh, 
like it used like a virtual dom to like find the difference in the um, html that was sent down the wire versus the you know the h the whatever was being displayed mm-hmm. in the dom so then it only updated that i think does that sound right yeah, I think so. Yeah, the live view has a very, very small data that comes back out, just a normal difference. So the does does this do like a similar thing? I'm not sure. Do you know Ben? Yeah, I think it does. I don't think it's quite as a little bit of data as uh, the Phoenix Live View. I think there's more, but yeah, it does do a, a certain kind of DOM diffing. It uses, I believe, DOM morph. Yeah, morph morph, morph, morph DOM, DOM. Yeah, uh, and uh, changes. So you're definitely not sending back a whole page. But you're sending back some HTML, so not as little bit as uh, yeah. Live View, which is just sends back a very small. Sorry, I forgot. I, I I was I I had the same question. Um, and actually, I I forgot to give a shout out to Andrew Mason, who is also on the Remote uh, Ruby podcast now. But after the show yesterday, we were talking about um, because he works. I can't remember the the author's name um, of uh, Stimulus Reflex, but he works with him at Code Fund. Yeah, so we were talking about it. He said, like, what I kind of got from him was that it's, it, it should be possible to get it down to the, that, like, the small amount of data over the wire as, like, I think it's the same idea in theory. So I don't know if it's quite there yet, but it sounds like it might get there eventually. Like, I think it's the same concept. But yeah, you're right. It does the, um, it uses morph, morph DOM or whatever, which is a, a no JavaScript library to, uh, or JavaScript library to, do the, the diffing and then basically just replace just what has changed in your in your elements. I mean, of course, the big question is, does it work on Lambda? <laughs> right. That's the biggest, that's the big thing, right? Um, yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. Part of the um, answer to the question of like sending data over the wire is also like how you like you can choose how much you want to send. So you don't have to replace an entire element if you're just updating like a counter or something, like you can actually, there's an option to like send just a counter, like you can just send the data and the, then the data gets handled on the front end. Oh, cool. Well, you've learned uh, a lot from that. I know, right? I, but the iPad has come in handy. So that, that's the other picture, <laughs> part of the story. <laughs> so the moral story is have at least five computing devices in your home yes. that you can use in case two of them fail. Exactly, yeah. Like I never thought I'd, that all this redundancy would come in so handy, but it really has. Yeah, we'll see. Finger, fingers crossed that I don't lose more devices over the next few days. Because if I go at this rate, I'm, I'm going to be... You'll be I'm beating be like, together to be yeah. able to cook a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, should we wrap it up? We should. All right. Well, this has been FounderQuest. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and review us. If you would like to write for the Honey Badger blog, um, we um, hire people to write, you know, Rails and Elixir and, you know, maybe other language tutorials. So just go to blog.honeybadger.io. Wait, that's 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 an old way of it. That's our old um, way of, of getting to the blog, but it still works. Just don't link directly to that, please. Go there and there'll be a, a link in the top nav saying how to write for us. So I will talk to you all later. Have a great week. ThunderQuest is a weekly podcast by the founders of Honey Badger. Zero instrumentation, 360-degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Available at honeybadger.io. Want more from the founders? Go to founderquestpodcast.com. That's one word. You can access our huge back catalog or sign up for our newsletter to get exclusive VIP content. FounderQuest is available on iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of fine podcasts. We'll see you next week.